0: Now I've been talking to you a a bit about the way in which the book of Ephesians reflects uh, Trinitarian patterns or at least patterns that will lead to a doctrine of the Trinity and uh, this morning I thought I'd show you some more. So Hmm. I wonder if you'd turn with me to Ephesians chapter 1 and uh, we're going to have a look at verse 15 which is uh, the verse after the one that we've got to in the past. So Ephesians chapter 1 verse 15. Now I am going to read from the new international version because it picks up a reference to the spirit that I think that Paul is making and I think he wants us to hear or his readers to hear and so he says this. For this reason ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints I have not stopped praying I've not stopped giving thanks for you remembering you in my prayers. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the Spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know Him better. Uh, can you hear all those references? Uh, God, Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, the Spirit, which I think means the Holy Spirit. Notice what Paul's saying he is praying for an increased knowledge of God among these believers. That is, he wants them to grow in their understanding of who God is and their practice of who God is. He knows that knowledge of God is a gift from God, the Father. And so he asks God to grant this gift. He knows also that uh, this sort of knowledge is not just a one-off thing, but it's, uh, And so he, he keeps asking for it. It's a, it's a repetitive thing that he does. He said, look, I've kept asking for this for you. That is, this is a prayer that in one sense never ceases. It's a prayer that you need to pray for yourself continually. Now I want you to notice who he calls God. He calls God the Father. He is the Father in relation to our Lord Jesus Christ who is his Son. Friends, this is a prayer, and please hear me on this, this is a prayer for all occasions. It is for every stage of Christian living. You could pray this prayer the day you became Christian and the day you died, uh, and it would still be a good prayer for you. It is a prayer you need to pray continually. It is a prayer for all stages of Christian living. And uh, mind you, it's a prayer you could pray today and tomorrow yourself. Uh, It is a prayer that is first on Paul's agenda for these Christians, for this church. It is deeply, deeply Trinitarian. Paul knows that communion with God is necessary for these people. He knows that knowledge of God comes from the Father, through the Son, by the Holy Spirit. Do Do you see that? It comes from the Father, through the Son, by the Holy Spirit. And he knows it's got to be progressive. It's not something that starts today and uh, you know you pray it today and tomorrow God grants it and that's it. No, it happens progressively and continuously. In other words, knowing God is something that we never finish with. Uh, it's always growing. So he prays this for his people. And friends, I thought we might stop and pray this now for each one of us today since it's such a good thing to pray for. Why don't we pray it? So I will pray. Lord God our Father, you are the gracious and glorious Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so we come to you today and we ask again that you would give us the Holy Spirit of wisdom and revelation so that we might continue to grow in our knowledge of you. May we know you better. We thank you for what we have learnt about you this last day. But God, we know that such growth must be progressive and continuous and such knowledge can only come from you. So please be at work in us by your Spirit that we might know you better and better. And we pray this in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Friends, I wonder if you notice what I just did. I turned uh, something that's there in the Bible into a prayer. You can do that all the time. And uh, if you've never done that exercise, do it. It's a great way to learn how to pray. Just turn the scriptures into prayer and pray them through. By the way, I have deliberately in the last day been praying in a particular way. And Mind you, it's easy because I pray in this way all the time. But I have been praying in a particular way and I wonder if you've noticed how I've structured my prayers. Uh, My understanding is there's nothing theologically wrong with praying to Jesus. Nothing theologically wrong about it at all. It happens a few times in the New Testament. Stephen does it when he's uh, being stoned to death. Uh, Let me say, I think there's probably nothing theologically wrong with praying to the Holy Spirit as well, but there's absolutely no examples of that in the New Testament that I can find. If you know of one, then please let me know because I'd be very glad to hear of it. The norm for prayer is Trinitarian and it goes like this. Pray to the Father... In the name of the Son, through the power of the Spirit, so pray to the Father, in the name of the Son, through the power of the Spirit. That is the norm for Christian prayer, and that's what you'll find when you work through the New Testament. You'll find people praying that way all the time. Uh, Paul will be praying to the Father. You'll be praying through, you know, in the name of the Son, and that, that's what that is the norm such prayer we ought to be doing because it reflects the Gospel itself. Uh, With that in mind, I want you to turn to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 18. So flip over the page to Ephesians 2. And uh, just to put you in some context, in Ephesians 2, Paul is talking about God's great plan in the Gospel. And that plan, he says, is to break down the dividing wall between Jew and and Gentile, in order, he says, to create a whole new humanity. That is, there's a, God wants to create a whole new breed of humans, as it were, or a whole new breed of humanity. And that breed of humanity has no distinctions that are based on race between us. There are no Jews, there are no Gentiles, there's no us and them, there's just us together. And uh, look at what Paul says about that. For through him we both have access by one spirit to the Father. Now the we both means Jews and Gentiles alike. The him of course refers to Jesus. So we all, and you can see us all here today, we all have access to God through the Holy Spirit, but through Jesus Christ, by the Holy Spirit to the Father. And friends, that, that is startling. There are at least half a dozen nationalities in our room uh, and we all have access to the same God by the same mechanism. We, we all come to him through Jesus Christ by one Spirit. And it breaks down all the dividing rules. And so it doesn't matter whether you come from, as my ancestors did originally, from Scotland, uh, or whether you come from mainland China, your ancestors originally, or whether you uh, come from uh, Malay stock, or whether you come from uh, Singapore, or whether you come from Europe, or whether you come from North America, it doesn't matter. We all have access in the same way. We're on a level playing field. There are no distinctions between us in terms of nationality. Uh, So whatever part of the world you come from, you come to God in the same way. You come through Jesus Christ, by one Spirit, to the Father And that's how I came to God, it's how you came to God, it's how everyone comes to God who knows God truly. And it reflects what happened in the Gospel, because what does the Gospel tell you? It says that God sent out the Gospel into all the world and said any can come in. Now, look at how Paul goes on, and I want you to notice the Trinitarian shape of what he says. Verse 19, So then, You are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with the saints, members of God's household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. The whole building being put together by him, that is Christ, I think, grows into a holy sanctuary in the Lord. You also are being built together For God's dwelling in the Spirit. Did you hear all the references to God and all the different persons of the Godhead? The church, you see, is the household of God. The cornerstone to that household is Christ. It is built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets. I take it that that means the teaching of the apostles and prophets. It's put together by Christ and it grows into a sanctuary or a temple in Christ. And the whole lot together is God's dwelling. And it's a dwelling in the Spirit. Do you notice what's going on? The church, that's us. The church is God the Father's dwelling place. You see, God the Father, as we meet together as the people of God, dwells with us. He's here, present with us. We, together, are God's dwelling place. It's a dwelling built upon the foundation of Jesus Christ. Why? Because that's how we got into it. He's the one that we share as our foundation. It is a place where God dwells by his Holy Spirit. Friends, this is us. It's an astounding thing when you think about it. We are God's portable dwelling place. In the Spirit, through the Messiah Jesus, we reveal the Trinity here today. We reveal the Trinity just by meeting as we're doing, for we are God's dwelling place. Through Christ Jesus, accomplished by the work of the Holy Spirit, we reveal the Trinity even now. Now at this point, it's a good point to move to Ephesians 4, which we have been uh, working up to. Now the first thing to notice in Ephesians 4 is how Paul starts. He starts with the word therefore um, and if your versions don't have it it's a great pity because the word therefore means exactly that. Therefore, given everything I've said so far therefore something else. And, uh, and what, he's, what the therefore I think refers to is everything I've said in chapters 1 through to 3 Therefore, in the light of God's great gospel plan revealed in Jesus, demonstrated in the unity of Jew and Gentile together, in the light of this great plan of God that I've outlined for you, I, Paul, the prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling you have received. What is the calling they've received? It's to be Christian. It's to be Christian. It's the calling to be members of a new humanity forged in Christ out of Jew and Gentiles to be that dwelling place of God in the Spirit. Okay, the unity that they are to achieve is mapped out in verses 1 to 6 or 4 through to 6 and I want you to notice it. It's a unity that Paul outlines using a number of uh, seven characteristics. The perfect number. The God number in many senses. Okay, uh, there is one Spirit, one hope to which you were called, one Lord Jesus, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is above all and through all and in all. By the way, there's something really special about that last statement as well because do do you notice it's got three in it as well? Above all, through all, in all. So, even itself, it's sort of, you know, the sevens, the threes, they're all sort of multiplied together. Can you see what Paul's saying? He's saying that God's secret plan, now revealed, has been physically launched in time and space. That is, God's new humanity, which He has had planned from all, from the beginning of time, has a, um, a time and space pilot project. And do you know who it is? It's us. It's the Church. For there, in the Church, people from every nation, every background, are bound together in a Trinitarian unity that rises above all differences of religion, nationality, background, age, sex, culture. God's eternity, here with us, has invaded earth. It is here God's eternity that will be true for eternity has invaded time and space in God's pilot project of the church. That's who we are. And in the church God is parading his final goal for all humanity, for the world to see. All humans bound together by him in one, tied together by a peace that has been won in Christ Jesus through the Gospel. And this end time outpost or this pilot project is God's means of making known God's multifaceted wisdom to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. I bet you've never thought of yourself that way. That as you meet as God's people, God is parading around his multifaceted wisdom in the heavenly places. He's saying, this is who I am. This is what I'm on about. This is what I'm doing. Watch and see. That's what Paul says back in Ephesians 3 verse 10 if you want the reference for that. With that in mind, I want you to notice something. Look again at verses 1 to 6. Paul acknowledges, look, the church is a unity in its calling. It is one, this, one, that, one, that, one, that, one, that. all seven times, he says it. However, that unity must be maintained. It needs to be worked at. It requires people to walk in a manner worthy of the calling they have received. It requires that you work at keeping unity. And what, to keep unity, what do you need? Paul makes it clear here. It needs humility and gentleness and patience and acceptance. You see, because we're still human, aren't we? And uh, we come from all sorts of different backgrounds, from all sorts of different temperaments, all sort of different personality profiles and we all get thrown together here in one place. And that's going to create tension inevitably. And for that to be resolved you'll need humility and gentleness, patience and acceptance. With that in mind, let's have a look at the next part of our passage, verses 7 to 11. Now verses 1 to 6 have stressed our unity And they said, keep that unity in the unity of the Spirit. Keep that unity of the Spirit. But then verses 7 to 11, well, they stress our diversity. Have a look at it there. You'll see that all of a sudden he moves into talking about diversity. This unity in diversity is in itself an expression of the Trinity. You see, God in Trinity is both unity and plurality, isn't he? And we're a bit like that in the church. One together in one binding allegiance to Christ, brought together through through Christ's work, bound together in the Spirit. We are one in Christ. We are bound together in the Gospel. There is one body, one Spirit, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of us all. But there is also incredible diversity. And that diversity also comes from God. So the unity is from God, the diversity is from God. And just as he has made us one, so he has made us diverse. Look at verse 7. Having focused on the big picture of our unity, he now concentrates on each one of us individually. And he tells us that God has given grace to each one of us according to the measure of the Messiah's gift. You see, God has given to each one of us gifts. And to support that that, that contention, he uses Psalm 68. Now, let me tell you, at this point, uh, you can see Psalm 68. It says, uh, for when he descended on high, he took prisoners into captivity and he gave gifts to people. There is so much debate over this verse, it's not funny. So, uh, um, I'm going to tell you what I think it means and not worry about it too much. Okay? I think it means this. This is what I think is going on. Uh, First, Paul is saying that Jesus descended to earth and became a human king. He became a human king actually on the cross. That was in a sense his throne. That was where he was glorified. So he descended to earth and became a human king. Second, Jesus ascended to heaven as sovereign ruler, that is, as a king over all of humanity and all of eternity. And third, that Jesus gave gifts to his church. And with that in mind, let's focus on the gifts that are specifically mentioned here. You see, the gifts mentioned here are very specific gifts and they look like foundational gifts in many ways, don't they? They're not the ones that are mentioned in 1 Corinthians uh, chapters 12 through to 14. They're not the ones that are mentioned in Romans 12. These ones, though there's some overlap, seem to be foundational in some way. It looks as though they're the gifts that set the sort of boundaries and scope of all other gifts. Let me explain. Look at verse 11. There are four or five gifts, depending on how you count. So let me explain them. First, Jesus Christ gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers. Now there's again lots of debate about this verse. I think the general thrust of it is clear. Apostles and prophets, what, what do you reckon they are? Well, they probably refer to the people referred to back in Ephesians 2 verse 20 and chapter 3 verse 5. That is, the apostles and prophets who first received and proclaimed Jesus. That would include the twelve plus some others. Okay, So, it's probably that group of people, the, those, those foundational people. And then, an evangelist, pastors, teachers—what do what they do? Evangelists, pastors, teachers—they're church workers, aren't they? They're generally people that are work in the church, and even to outsiders, who proclaim, explain, and teach the ramifications of what God has done in Christ. So, apostles—sorry, evangelists, pastors, teachers—generally work in a church context or evangelistically to proclaim, explain and teach the ramifications of what God has done in Jesus. And because of the way the original uh, language is constructed, some people think pastors and teachers are one gift. One gift, that is, that a pastor and a teacher overlaps. That is, a pastor pastors by teaching. It also does pastoral work, but it's all through the ministry of the word. Uh, so you'd abbreviate it by calling them a pastor-teacher. Others think that the two gifts overlap. Lately, I've begun to think the second alternative is right. For most of my Christian life, I've thought the first alternative is right and I've changed my mind since I've been doing some preaching on Ephesians. It doesn't really matter that much. Whether you think four or five, the general thrust of it is clear, isn't it? Uh, what do all of them do that they share in common? But They're, they're all speaking gifts, aren't they? So They're, they're, all, they're all people that run around speaking. Some speak in order to reveal God's great mystery in Jesus Christ through the Gospel. Some seek to persuade people to become Christians, evangelists. Some seek to pastor and nurture Christians in their faith. Some speak to teach people what faith is all about. But they're all sort of speaking just fundamentally and all speak of Jesus. All speak of the great mystery in Christ Jesus through the Gospel. So these foundational gifts have a common element. They are all gifts of speaking. Friends, I want to tell you that one of the key reasons why I came to the church that I came to uh, 16 months ago was because it had a reputation of a church that loves hearing God's word explained. And uh, I, I said to them, uh, when I preached on this passage recently, that I knew that they loved hearing God's word explained, and uh, and I knew that their life was a life that was grounded, that that their life and witness and ministry was founded and grounded in God's words. But I said to them, and I say the same thing to you, because I know you're a church, you're a group of people that love hearing God's word. Otherwise, why would you give up these two days to hear it? That's a big two days you've given up. Uh, lots of content being given where well, you could only do that because you want it I presume, unless someone's dragged you along by the scruff of your neck or something. <laughs> um, I want you to notice what Paul says here though. He focuses in on these speaking gifts. He knows they're foundational. He knows that Jesus knows that they are foundational but they are not an end in themselves. They are not an end in themselves. Bible knowledge all this stuff you've gathered about the Trinity in the last day or so is not an end in itself. It is not just so that you go home today with your brain stuffed with new information. That's not what it's been for. And I'm sure Andrew would agree that's not what he organised this day for. It has a goal. Teaching has a goal in verses 12 to 16 tell us what that goal is. So let's look at them. Again, lots of debate about how you put these verses together. Let me tell you what I think is being said here. uh, I'm going to tell you, uh, try and illustrate it by hand movements so you can see the logic. Start at verse 11. Paul says that Jesus gave these foundational speaking gifts. In verse 12 he says that he gave them for the training of the saints in the work of ministry so as to build up the body of Christ. Now, There's lots of debate, but let me tell you what I think is happening. Jesus gave, verse 11, for the training of the saints, indent, in the work of ministry, out again, to build up the body of Christ until... Does that make sense? So, gave for the training of the saints in the work of ministry, in order to... Build up the body of Christ until this goal comes. Okay, I think that's the language and structure of these verses. Can you see what's going on? He's telling us that the ministers of God's word are given by Christ. They are given by Christ to equip believers to exercise their own gifts in Christian ministry. That's why I'm here. That's why... Nick's been here. It's why Andrew's been here. It's why you've been doing all of this other stuff with Bible study with leaders and so on in your groups. It's why I've been having electives. Because we don't want you to just use this information to stuff your head, but we want you to use it for works of service, to exercise your own gifts in Christian ministry. And through this, what will happen? If you take this information and you use it to equip yourself for Christian ministry, then God's goal will be accomplished by heading towards where he's going in his purposes with his church. And in verse 13 he tells us what the goal is. God's goal for his church is unity and maturity. Unity and maturity. Can you see it there? Christ gave gifts to equip all God's people to exercise their own gifts, to build up the body of Christ, that is the church, until we reach unity in the faith and the knowledge of God's Son. And we grow into a maturity that's measured by Christ's fullness. That's what God is aiming for with us. He wants us to be united in the faith and knowledge of his Son. And do you notice that again? Where's all this going as far as God's concerned? Well, it's going to the one he loves, isn't it? It's going so that he will be glorified by a body of people who love him and who testify to him and it will therefore honour him. And that's what the Father wants, because the Father loves his Son. He wants us to be a mature, one new humanity, founded and grounded in Christ. He wants this maturity to be measured by Christ's fullness. That is, he wants us to be like the Jesus we worship and have come to know through the Gospel. Friends, our life as God's people in church is structured on Trinitarian relationships. Just as God has a focus on Christ and his glory, so the church has a focus on Christ and his glory and his fullness. That's where we're going, same place as God's going. That's who we are. Now at this point I was going to have a look at Philippians 2 but I did a bit of that yesterday so we're going to move on to the next section. But I thought we'd break here and see if there are any questions before we go on. Because there's been lots of information again. Any questions people have? Okay, we'll press on. Last chance. Going, going. All right. Have a look at. uh, I want to talk a bit about this task that we have been given, and I want to stick with the writings of John the Apostle, and uh, I want to start with his reflections on God Himself. So, please turn with me to John chapter one, verses one to eighteen. John chapter one. One to eighteen. Now we've looked at this passage before, and uh, but I want to just try and I want you to get the direction of it. I want you to notice where God starts. Well, sorry, where John starts in, uh, inspired by the Holy Spirit, he starts this way: with God in eternity in Himself, doesn't He? God in eternity in Himself. By verse 4 though, you can see that there, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God, He was with God in the beginning, all things were created through Him, apart from Him was nothing that was created, not one thing that was created that has been created. And then verse 4, there's a slight but subtle shift. The language shifts. He begins, begins to use the language of light and life. And he begins to talk about light coming to people. In other words, God begins to be seen not in himself but in relation to others outside of himself. Does that make sense? God is beginning now to come to others. He is looking outwardly, or at least that's John's presentation of him. And then in verse 5 it becomes really explicit. That light shines in the darkness, yet the darkness did not overcome it. You see, God has a true light and that true light is coming into the world. And this is testified to by John. And God's intention is that this light is received by humans. And where it is received, he says, then people are adopted by God. That is, they are given the right to be children of God. Can you see that there? There was a, name, uh, there was a man named John who was sent from God. He came as a witness to testify about the light so that all might believe through him he was not the light he came to testify about the light. The true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, the world was created through him, yet the world did not recognise him. He came to his own, but his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, he gave them the right to be children of God, to those who believe in his name, who are born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. God's intention is this, that light is received by humans, and that they become the adopted children of God. And then in verse 14, this light is identified. It's taken a long time. So you've heard word, life, light. You've heard about John being a witness. And finally in verse 14, you identify him as the word become flesh, the only one and only son from the Father. And then finally in verse 17, you get his human name, Jesus Christ. And you find out that he's the agent of grace and truth, the full revelation of God. Did you notice this outward direction? Can you see it all? It's, it's all going outward, isn't it? God as an evangelist is here, sending his Son into the world, as light in the world, as this bright, shining light that will transform people into children of God. Now, with that in mind, turn to John 17. Now John 17 is a grand prayer where the Lord Jesus addresses his Father in prayer. And the great thing about it is we get to eavesdrop on him. So we get to listen in as he talks to his Father. And let's see what he has to say. First, I want you to notice verses 1 and 2. Jesus requests his Father to act to glorify his Son, which of course the Father wants to do, but Jesus rightly asks him to. And we notice there's a reciprocal relationship that we saw yesterday. The Father glorifies the Son. Why? Well, so that the Son may in turn glorify the Father. There's this mutuality about it, this reciprocal glorifying. And it's all aimed at the glory of God. Now look at verse 2. We get the same things we saw in chapter 1. God's overall thrust is the glory of the Son and the Father. However, there's also a focus outside the Godhead. And that focus is the gift of eternal life for all flesh. And that eternal life finds its focus in God and in his Son. Can you see that there? For you gave him authority over all flesh, verse 2. So that he might do what? Give eternal life to all that you have given him. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and the one you have sent, Jesus Christ. I have glorified you on earth by completing the work you gave me to do. Now, Father, glorify me in your presence with that glory I had with you before the world existed. So now in verse 6. Jesus turns to the people who receive that gift of of eternal life. In other words, he turns his attention to the people that God has given him. And in verse 10, do you notice what he does? He notes that God's purpose of glorifying the Son has happened in them. Can you see it there in verse 10? Everything I have is yours and everything you have is mine and I have been glorified in them. So there it is, all headed towards the glory of God again. And uh, However, he knows that these people are at risk with him no longer in the world and so he asks that God would protect them. And in verse 14 he notes that they will inevitably be the object of the world's hatred so they need protection from the evil one. And so he says to God, God will sanctify them in the truth of your word. Now look at verse 18. Look at what it says. As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. I sanctify myself for them, so that they may be sanctified in the truth. Did you notice what happened in chapter 1? We noticed the shift from God in himself to God toward outsiders. Do you remember that in chapter 1? Well, the same shift is happening here. Can you see it? Jesus has largely dealt with internal matters up till this point in John 17. It's all been about the father, the son and the children. It's all been largely internal matters up till now. But now he notes that just as God sent him into the world, he is sending them into the world. Just as it happened with God, so it happens with the church and their witness to him will result in others believing. You can see that in verse 20. I pray not only for these but also for those who will believe in me through their message. And so he prays that they'll be united just as Paul did in Ephesians 4 and this is so that the world might believe. And then the content of that belief is outlined in verse 23. I've given them the glory you, had, you, you have given me. May they be one as we are one. I in them and you are in me. May they be made completely one. Why? So that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. Do you remember the parading of God's manifold witness to the heavenly places? It's a bit like that, isn't it? As our unity in Christ is expressed, there's this great declaration of God's manifold wisdom and that's, what, that's the sort of thing that Jesus is praying for here. So, I wonder if you can hear it. I hope you have. God is about bringing glory to his Son. And his Son is about bringing glory to the Father. And all of this involves people getting to know the Lord Jesus Christ. And the relationship between God the Father and God the Son, therefore, is necessarily outward looking. It is necessarily missional. It is necessarily evangelistic. With that in mind, I want you to turn to 1 John. Remember, we're sticking with John as much as we can. So, 1 John. I tell you what, If there's nothing else, John is consistent. He he sticks with a theme and just works it through. And uh, here he does it again. This is John the Apostle. He's reflecting on the focus, this focus we see in the Gospel, reflected in his ministry, and he talks. And this is the language that I used uh, yesterday about hearing, seeing, experiencing and so on. He uses that language himself. See, what was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have observed and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. Now, what he's saying is uh, what we saw, what we touched, what we observed, what we heard was the revealed life of God in his Son. Then he goes on to say that he and others have taken what they've seen and heard and they've declared it. And what is the intention of their declaration? Verse 3. What we have seen and heard, we also declare to you. Why? So that you might have fellowship with us. And indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And that will result in their joy. Can you see that there? We're writing these things so that our joy may be made complete. Can you see the outward nature again? There it is. It's all working out to the world. God the Father looks outward so that the Son might be glorified. The people of God look outward, so that the Son might be glorified. They seek that the Son be glorified by people being brought into fellowship with him and with the Father. It is just always pushing out, so that Christ's glory may be seen more and more, as more and more are brought into fellowship with the Son. And God's manifold wisdom is proclaimed in the heavenly places. Now, turn to the last pages of Scripture. So we're still sticking with John, assuming that it's the same John the Apostle who uh, wrote this, which I suspect it is. So, the last couple of pages of the book of Revelation. The last couple of pages of the book of Revelation tell us where God is going in his world. So, let's start with chapter 21. Now, what what happens in chapter 21 is you open up with a, a vision of a new heaven and a new earth. And uh, in chapter 21, that new heaven and new earth is pictured as a holy city, a new Jerusalem descending from heaven, as it were. And in chapter 22, you hear echoes of the Garden of Eden because you've got a river of life, uh, of living water, lined with the tree of life. So you've got this river... You've got the tree of life on every side and you know it looks a bit like this garden but at the same time it's a city. Um, and in verse 22 we're told that there is no sanctuary or temple there. Sanctuaries and temple are not needed. Why? Because why do you have a sanctuary or a temple? Well, it's a representation of God's presence. Well, do you need a representation when you've actually got God present himself? No, you don't. So, no temple, no sanctuary because God's there. Uh, not only that, but there's someone else there that wasn't in the garden. There's a lamb. Now that lamb is the lamb of Revelation 5 who, who's uh, a lamb that should look like a lion but is actually a lamb, a symbol of weakness. And that lamb standing in the throne room and it's got blood dripping from its throat but it's standing. In other words, it's slaughtered but risen, a symbol of death and resurrection. So that's the lamb who's standing here, the lamb of Revelation 5 who's been slaughtered but is standing as though resurrected. And verse 23 tells us that you don't need any external light in this city. Why? Because God's glory illuminates it. it. It has its own light which is the glory of God. And we're told that the lamb is the lamb himself. So oh, there it is. Remember the glory? You can see how this all fits with John. It sounds like John again, doesn't it? Right, so here's the glory of the Lamb being paraded before the world. for light that lights up everything. And, then we're, and uh, now I want to draw your attention to chapter 22. Turn with it and have a look. In verse 3, we're told again of the throne of God the Father. We're told again of the Lamb. We're told again of his people, the slaves who serve the land. They will see his face, we're told, and they will reign forever and ever. Friends, this is the picture that we saw in 1 John, isn't it? Fellowship with the Father, fellowship with the Son, but there's an additional element here. Drop your eyes down to verse 14. A blessing is pronounced on all who have washed their robes in the blood of the Lamb. They will have the right to the tree of life and they may enter the city by its gates. And they will thereby, as they enter the city, what what does that mean? They will have fellowship with the Father and with his Son because that's where the Father and the Son are. Then look at verse 17. It's taken a long time to get to this point. But the Spirit is mentioned. So now you've got Father, Son and Holy Spirit and look who the Spirit is joined by. The Spirit is joined by the Bride and do you know what they're doing? They are looking outwards again. They're looking outwards of the city and they're urging others, come. Come in. Come and take the living water as a gift. Friends, The Spirit is the agent bringing people to Jesus, issuing the invitation to come. But he's got a partner, the Church, the Bride of Christ. That's us. Also saying, come. Come, come take the waters of life. Take them without cost. Take and drink. Here we are tied together, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, all looking outward and then joined by the Church, the Bride of Christ, all looking outward and inviting in. Why? Because God loves his Son. God's desire is to glorify his Son and the Son's desire is to glorify the Father. And both of these things will happen when people embrace the Son. When they accept the sacrifice of the Lamb. When they thereby drink of the living waters of that which is true life. Which is a life of fellowship with God. Friends, I hope you've grasped just some of this. And what are the implications of it for us? Friends, if you haven't got it now, you have been asleep, haven't you? Because the implications are that we go where the Father sends the Son. We go out. We go out and we invite in. The Church has been and always will be Gospel-driven, Gospel-centred. Why? Because We have been oriented by God in eternity to be that way. Our charter is to be that way. We are like John, like Jesus, like the Father himself, inviting people to the Son and saying, this is true life, fellowship with the Father and with the Son. So, Father, so friends, that's really all I wanted to say this morning. So, I think I've done that within my time. Um, So, how about I pray, and uh, then if there are questions, you can ask them. So, let's pray together. Father, we do thank you for the Lord Jesus. Thank you for all that you have done in him and through him. Thank you for John's grasp of this great plan. Thank you for your Church, for its expression of your life in its midst, for its diversity and its unity and thank you that you have wrapped us up in its mission as well. We thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, Friends, I thought I'd show you one other verse, actually, since uh, I did not look at it. Have a look at the end of John's Gospel, could you? So John chapter 21, and I'll show you one other secret where John just never gives up. And he, uh, he notices all these themes, and look at what he says. John chapter 21. And I'll just find the reference if I can. No, it's John chapter 20 and I'll read from verse 19. Remember this is after the resurrection. Someone says the work of Christ has been accomplished. Uh, In the evening, so he's died on the cross, he's been raised to new life or he's been raised to life again. And in the evening of the first day of the week, the disciples were gathered together with the doors locked because of their fear of the Jews. And then Jesus came. And he stood among them and he said to them, Peace to you. And having said this, he showed them his hands and his side. And so the disciples rejoiced when they saw the Lord. And Jesus said to them, Peace to you. And look at what he says. As the Father has sent me, so I send you. And after saying this, he breathed on them and said, "Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any they are forgiven. if you retain the sins of any, they are retained. Do you hear the Trinitarian language this is? God the Son doing it? And he says, "I'm giving you the Holy Spirit. Now go and do or I, I, go and do what the Father what I did from the Father. As he sent me, I'm sending you. And and the Holy Spirit's engaged in this and I'm equipping you with the Holy Spirit so that he might do the... So it's like Revelation, isn't it? The Spirit and the Bride. And then notice there's a power given that they can actually announce the forgiveness of sins. That's, I take it, what is being said there at least. So there it is again, you see, just saturated through John's Gospel. So if anyone tells you that uh, you know we ought not to be evangelists or whatever, they don't really understand God very well, because God Himself is an evangelist, always moving outward for the glory of His Son. See, and so that's what we should be doing. God has sent His Son; His Son has willingly said yes, and God is sending us, and He's equipping us for the task. So we ought to get on with it. I take it that's the implication. The questions, no?
1: Yeah. Uh, Sure, no, 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 it's all right, you ask. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah, good. Yeah, yeah, thank you. Thank you. Yeah. It's not in the text. So that's right, it's not in that text. So I'm trying to pick it up from, in one sense, the background in John as a whole. So, and you'd get that in uh, the passage we looked at in uh, chapter 17 of John's Gospel. However, even if we take that out, the same thing is going. The, the, the thrust of it is clear, isn't it? That is, you have uh, the, the garden city, which represents the full people of God. Uh, at its centre is the Father and the Lamb. And what you have is, in, in one sense, uh, the Bride and the Spirit issuing an invitation to everyone else to come into that.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Now, the question as to why that is going on and what what is happening there, uh, I've then used other Johannine language in order to suppose what's going on there and use the stuff from chapter 17 of John's Gospel or it's chapter 5 of John's Gospel in order to think about that. So, But I think that's what's going on in the city. It's wonderful picture language of, you know, the, the church has itself, well, not the church has itself, but the the language is that of fellowship with God in the Son because of the Son, and fellowship with the Father because of the Son, and of uh, John of the sort of thought things we saw in 1 John, that is of that invitation then extending out from God Himself uh, to others, saying, "Come and join us, that we might have fellowship with the Father and the Son." Yep. Yeah? Ah, thank you. Yeah, so the invitation is no no sorry, the invitation is to those outside that fellowship already to come in. Okay, so the bride being the church, those who already have fellowship with the Father and the Son joins the Spirit in uttering the invitation to come in. So thanks for asking, that's a good question, but I think that's what's going on. It's us who are the Church, the Bride of Christ, issuing the invitation to the world, come. Come and take the waters of life. That is, come and have fellowship with us and fellowship with the Son and the Father. Okay. Okay. Come and ask me later if there's more. Yeah. Any other questions? Yes. Sure. Uh-huh. Yeah, I think it's a very good question. Um, I will repeat the question: Chapter fourteen, verse verse twenty-eight. So I'll repeat the question as well. Um, yes. Yeah, so I'll read the whole verse. This is chapter. This is John chapter fourteen, verse twenty-eight. You've heard me tell you I'm going away and I'm coming to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced that I'm going to the Father because the Father is greater than I. Um, I take it that the greater than I here uh, is is in the sense that is, is again that question of order. It's not one of essential quality, if I could put it that way. I take it that that is what is being said. Greater in the sense that he's the one. You can see it in what actually happens within John's gospel. So in chapter five, it, it, chapter five is clear that he takes orders from, as it were, or, or copies, uh, imitates what God is doing. Uh, God the Father sends him, and he says, "Yes, I, I'm going." Uh, so in that sense, uh, he clearly sees God as having a higher authority than him. Uh, that is God the Father but you don't get you you also get the impression don't you that there's an equality between them and that that's the whole tension of the of the trinity i take it okay any other questions yeah yeah
1: worshiping god right yeah he would say coming? that's not going to happen. you know when the world lives God is spirit and who watches God so in spirit in and in truth yeah okay, so, um, I don't want to take it out of context. yeah so I'm hoping that I'm doing you know, in my life you know, God you know is not the Father and the Son, is the Holy Spirit okay Jesus spoke on so uh, and man will be flesh that's all that Mm.
0: <laughs> I don't know the answer to that question basically <laughs> um, yeah no I look I wouldn't even attempt to say, there are some of those things that I think I just don't understand enough of, and so in one sense I'd rather con i While they're interesting to think about and helpful and we should think about them, I just don't have an answer to it. I'm very glad to hear if anyone else does. But yeah, no I don't.
1: Okay? Good.
0: Oh, one more, Carol.
1: Yes, The 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 and Yeah, in because he Yeah. yeah.
0: And uh, can I just add to that? And then brings brings his people with him as glory as a gift to his father. Yeah. <laughs> yes, it's a very good question. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yes, thank you. That is a very good question because it looks very self-centred of God in some ways, doesn't it? It's all sort of mutual uh, um, glorifying. Yeah. Um, The the only thing that... I mean, I can give you some suggestions as to what you might read on this, but um, the only thing that I can say is I think... um, there are two things going on, isn't there? First of all, each of the persons of the Godhead are um, other person directed towards... So they're directed towards the other person of the Godhead. Okay, so the Father toward the Son. The Son even toward the Father, the Spirit um, outward directed as well. That's the first thing to say. Uh, the second thing to say is... Um, uh, the, it is also love toward the people that are being saved, isn't it? For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. So God's love is not, it, the people are not just a means for self glorification but they are also a means for exercising love toward the created order that God has made. So in that sense it's very outward looking as well. Yeah. But now on the whole question of God and his own, uh, if you like, um, uh, glorification within the Godhead and so on, the best person I know who's written on that, sometimes he goes a little further than I would, but I think he's, he's, got, he's on a theme that is really worth taking up, is uh, uh, John Piper. Uh, and he's written a book on this very topic. i just have to remember what it's called, which I'll do in a moment. Sorry? No, it's not that. There's another one that's about... Uh, I, I, just have to t- I can find out for you and I'll, I'll get you the name. But nearly everything John Piper says underneath it has this whole question of God's desire to glorify Himself, and how, and he explains that it's not a selfish thing. Okay, um, and and Piper's very rich with this because he's very rich with the the majesty of God and of God's uh, own person. So it's worth it. I'll give you the reference. Okay? Any other questions?
1: Yeah? Mm. Yeah. Yeah. so Yes, yeah. Hmm. <laughs> thank you. Yes.
0: Yes. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you very much. So the question. Let me see if I've got it right. Um, question is. So if, if I'm living a fairly internal life and uh, not really uh, ready for God to send me into the world, um, is there something wrong? Is that, is that fair? Uh, ah, sure, that if you didn't, yeah. Sure, yes. So if we don't answer Jesus' call, does that mean we don't love God? Yeah. It may mean that we haven't fully understood, understood God's love for us. It's very interesting in the New Testament there are two motivations given for evangelism. One is obedience, that is God's told you to do it, and the other is because you can't help but do it. That is you you just do it because in one sense you are lined up with where God is and doing what God is doing. So both the Apostles in John 4 and 5 indicate They say, um, when they're told to stop speaking about Jesus, they say to the religious authorities of their day, um, basically, this is my summary of it, Uh, you can check it up in John 4 and 5, what would you do? You've got a command from God and now you've given us a command, stop speaking in the name of Jesus, what would you do? And then they say, but we cannot help but speak of what we have seen and heard. So even if we didn't have the command to obey, we'd do it. Why? Because this is so grand that we cannot do anything else but proclaim it. So what I think that means is if we've got a reluctance to do the task of evangelism, then maybe we haven't fully understood just what it is that we have received from God. Um, And maybe we need to do some more work on that. Uh, The other place, if you want to look, is in... uh, look at uh, 1 Corinthians 8 where we've looked at 1 Corinthians 8 a number of times we've always stopped at verse 6 but keep going go into chapter 9 and you'll hear Paul talking about in a very sophisticated argument you'll hear Paul talking about why he offers the gospel free of charge to people why he doesn't charge any money and basically he's saying i think because my motivation for gospel preaching is not is that i It's been offered free to me, I want to offer it free to everyone else. And so his motivation is the joy of doing it at no cost to himself. Um, So I take it that we need to really wonder how much we have fully understood what God has done for us if we are not willing to share it with other people. However, I do think in the end we're under command even if we But I don't want to work on the command. I want to work on the why are we reluctant. Okay? So I think telling people to evangelise all the time is perhaps not the best way to do things. I think perhaps the way ahead is to say to people, look at what the Father has done for you in the Son. Look at what the Son has done for you. Look, Look at what it is that has happened here. Understand it. And I think if you really understand it, it will drive you to do things that you would never have done under obedience. (laughs) It'll drive you to offer your life as a sacrifice for this. Because that's what the Son did. And if you've watched the Son, you've seen him do this, you will say, what love is this that the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called the children of God? And it will drive you to give that love to others. So that's the best motivation for evangelism is to understand what it is that has happened on the cross. Okay? How about we call it a day there? Okay?